This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 29th, 2023. I'm Scott Lunderbaum. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to go back to the by-elections because while they were unsurprising, it was like almost entirely unsurprising in that there was like one tiny thing that's kind of notable, but probably isn't because they're by-elections, so we won't talk about them too, too much. Uh, we got more media news and uh, we're a growing country, so we'll talk about all of that first Help us grow the podcast, patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's start with the by-elections we talked about here in BC. We said they weren't going to be surprising. They were easy wins for the BC NDP, and they proved to be as both ridings voted a majority, and in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, a supermajority in favor of the new candidates from the BCNDP, Ravi Parmar in Langford, Wanda Fuca, and Joan Phillip in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. Uh, let's start in your riding, Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, because I think it's less interesting. And then we can talk about this, the like marginally more interesting other riding. It was extremely uninteresting. Uh, so yeah, as predicted, the uh, NDP cleaned house on that one, got the vast majority of the votes. The uh, second place party, BC United, came in with uh, just shy of 14%. So, complete blowout, no surprises there. It was pretty much over from the moment the NDP nominated their candidate. Yeah, the NDP and United, compared to 2020, both kept about 38, 39% of their vote. So, they, you know, turnout's lower in a by election. They both saw similar drops in vote, voter turnout. So there's nothing really remarkable. 67 and 13% are what they got in the election, and they're pretty much what they got last weekend. The Greens is a little bit more notable. They went from 4,300 votes to 900, uh, dropping from 20% to 11%. That's only 20% of their vote being held. It wasn't a strong riding for them in the last election, but it was a stronger riding where they had performed second, and this time they are third. So that's just bad on paper and... Uh, bad for like just has to be bad for morale at least like you, you, the greens probably weren't expecting to win either of these but a strong showing i also know that they put much would have been nice i like didn't encounter any like green canvassers or anything or, or really see my a huge amount of uh effort on their part to win the riding so they may have just decided that hey we're a small party we need to actually hold our resources back for the next general and they may have just decided that it's Vancouver Mount Pleasant. We're not going to be competitive anyway, so let's not throw a huge amount at it. Yeah, they ran candidate Wendy Hako, who I think ran in the Vancouver Langara by-election. No, no, sorry, the Vancouver Kilchana by-election. Um, and I, th I think they did put a little more effort into Langford Wanda Fuca, or maybe it's just because I know who ran some of the work on the campaign there. Uh, one of our listeners. I mean, the South Island is the obvious spot to try and grow because that is where their current base of seats is. Yeah. One day they'll want that Metro van breakthrough, but it probably wasn't going to be Mount Pleasant. No, if anything, uh, it's probably going to be like, uh, was it Vancouver Sea to Sky? The right writing? Yeah, West Van was pretty strong for them. Well, Squamish, I think that's probably carrying the, the ball to that. I think West Van's probably more. Well, the West Vancouver riding, not the city. Yeah. Uh, or municipality rounding out vancouver mount pleasant the conservative candidate got just under 400 votes and the communist got 167 and two percent of the vote neither of them ran in 2020 langford so ravi parmar scoops up 54 percent of the vote this is ravi parmar scoops up 53 percent of the vote this is down from the 68 percent john horgan got uh, dropping from 18,000 votes to 7,000. It's still holding 40% of their vote, which is similar to what they did in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. By-election didn't have to try that hard. Uh, the surprise in Langford, though, was the second place was BC Conservative Party candidate Mike Harris. 
And that, I think, surprised everyone. He got 2,700 votes just ahead of the BC Greens, who got 2,400, Camille Curry, uh, who came in at 18%. But yeah, 20% of the vote for the Conservatives, who had not ran a candidate there in 2020. Yeah, this was the big surprise of the night, was how well the BC Conservatives did in Langford, Wanda Futa. I mean, it's not a naturally conservative riding anyway, but uh, you still would have expected that... uh, you know, under the standard script of BC politics, that uh, the BC Liberals and or their rebranded party would be the one that would, you know, sit solidly second place. And the fact that their vote pretty much just collapsed and left uh, and uh, that the Conservatives came in and, you know, got 20% of the vote and like, were these solid choice for right of center voters in that writing is uh something that ought to uh put a lot of concern uh into the uh bc united yeah in 2020 the bc liberal candidate got just under 4000 votes in this and 15% of the vote in this election they got 1173 votes uh 8.6% they only kept they kept less than a third of their vote and so people just didn't show up for them. This prompted questions of, do they are people confused about what party it is? Uh, I think in Mount Pleasant, we saw that the Liberals were able to go and vote for BC United. And so maybe that theory isn't true. Although I do like the joke I made in our DM that maybe they should just call them the BC who instead of the BCU. Uh, but I think it was more just that this candidate, I mean, the other like facetious theory is that there's a big chunk of conservative ex-Ontarians in Langford. Who thought it was the other who, conservative Mike Harris? Yeah, that, you know, he just retired to the island like so many do and decided to stage his comeback in John Horgan's old writing. But more realistically, I think it's that Harris ran a different campaign than Karen Litsky in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. Litsky ran on the... well. For context, Litsky's a former, like, PPC candidate, and her campaign didn't deviate from that script all that much. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, they're they're trying to make your kids trans in school, and that's a bad thing. Uh, Mike Harris focused, I think, more on the economic arguments. Um, Maybe some of the anti-climate change stuff, or maybe just more of a, like, we should be harder and more pro-oil in Langford. And there's some people who would probably have uh, an affinity for that. Apparently, twenty percent. Which, this like, has keep to be in really... mind, that used to be like the PC United's bread and butter. Uh, yeah, the fact that they weren't able to like lock down that kind of, hey, we're the economic party. We're going to be all about you know good jobs and prosperity and that sort of thing, and growing the economy. Like that should have been the message that they carry forward and. That has generally served them well in the past. And if they're not doing a good job delivering that message, and I honestly don't think they are. Like It is hard to say what uh, this version of the party's raison d'etre is beyond not being the NDP. And that alone is not really enough. Yeah, like this result isn't so good for the conservatives that they're looking at forming the new opposition. But it's definitely enough that BC United has to look at a lot of their seats across rural BC and worry that they could be obliterated from a big chunk of this province in vote splitting in a lot of different ways. Uh, And it makes a lot of seats in play that would otherwise not be in the way that like 2015 in Alberta was for the Alberta NDP just sweeping through random places on three-way races. Yeah, and... Like it might actually be the case that uh, right now the brand of conservative has a lot more kind of brand recognition than the brand of United does within the province of BC, just because you know there's a recognizable federal party, and you, know, you can see your you know you can see the reflections of that you, you like have that name recognition that just pops out. Whereas BC United jettisoned that sort of thing when they got rid of the liberal brand. And that may end up hurting them. Like, yeah, they still have the fundraising networks. They still have the lists and those are invaluable, but that's not all there is. And they might have uh, seriously screwed up the rebranding exercise and, you know, pit this like vague name that nobody really knows what it stands for. Nobody really has any like 
idea of what BC United really is. And considering they haven't exactly found like a strong, coherent value proposition they're putting forward to connect that brand to, they're potentially in real trouble on this because that means a lot of like the momentum they had just from like brand inertia just isn't there anymore. The one thing I will give them uh, as charity is this is a by-election, right? It really doesn't matter in the long run. And that's why I don't want to talk about it for too much longer. Uh, and elections matter. Like you put the BC conservative leader, M who's the MLA, whose name I have forgotten once again. Yeah, you put John Rustad up against Kevin Falcon, and it's probably going to be Falcon, who's a far more seasoned politician, who's been in cabinet, and who can at least do a speech. Um, Rustad has never struck me as like the particularly charismatic leader, and it might be a scenario... Have Falcon has? Uh, he at least won one race already. I mean, that that's that's a membership organization race like that's all about what your campaign team does to go out and hustle memberships like it's a it's a different ball game running a provincial campaign that's for sure and so like i guess it, we'll have to see how it comes down in the election but that's a chance where bc united can really use the fiscal resources they have that the conservatives definitely don't like i'm going to be watching for when Elections BC releases the financials from these by-elections to see not just in terms of votes, but like how many donations did these two raise? Because we know that the Conservatives have nowhere near the donor base that the BC United has. It's growing, but it's not growing that big. Like they're not even as big as the Greens by any stretch. So it, we're talking like an order of magnitude more fiscal capacity for BC United to get its message out in a general where there will be more coverage, there will be TV ads, and people will start paying attention. By-elections, people probably got to the voting box and went, oh yeah, there's a by-election. Uh, conservative seems more interesting to me than BC, who united, and it could have been as simple as that. So work to be done for Kevin Falcon and his united team. But, you know, we've seen the work done by that Jason Kenney was able to do to unite the right in Alberta. Uh, Although I will note Kevin that Kevin hasn't united this right, I guess. Yeah. Although I will note with Kenny, he at least uh, kept a recognizable political brand in conservative and kind of played around with the uh, the adjectives that got attached to it. Whereas they jettisoned the the main brand here, and the only thing they kept was British Columbia, which does not tell you anything. With, you know, also having the BC Green Party and the BC NDP on the ballot. Hey, the Saskatchewan Party and the Yukon Party have been pretty successful as political entities, despite lacking a clear ideology in the name. So it wasn't a kiss of death, but right now it seems like it was a hug of, I don't know, painful decision making in the past. Finally, in Langford, Wanda Fuca, the communist candidate Tyson Real Strandland, who ran in 2020 as well, dropped from 130 votes to 74. He actually did the best, though, by keeping 57% of his votes. So the communists uh, had the best turnout of their tiny marginal half a percentage of base. But the revolution's not coming after this result. That's enough talking about by-elections, I think. They don't mean anything. The NDP keeps its very large majority in this government. Let's go and talk about other news which you won't be able to find on uh, Google soon. Whether you go to search for it or you do like I do on your Android phone and like swipe right to see that news highlights, all of that is going to go bye-bye in the next six months as Google is following Meta in just removing news in response to C18, the Online News Act. They say they don't want to deal with the regulations and they're just going to strip all of the news out of their systems, which will be a real pain in the ass for me. I wasn't going to miss it on Facebook, but I'm sure going to miss it on my phone. Oh, well, if it isn't the inevitable consequences of badly thought out legislation coming home to roost. <sighs> yeah. Like, it, I, for it, one, am not a big fan of giant tech companies, like, trying to hostage negotiate. Is this hostage negotiating, with the government? Like, 
keep in mind it's strong arm negotiating at least but it's also just like yeah well, you said let's walk through the logic of the bill here like in theory this is a the government has said hey if you link to these news articles without paying them for it you're stealing their content and doodles apparently decided that hey i'm not we're not going to do that anymore so like under the logic of the law if they're no longer stealing the content that would be a policy win it should all be good um and like this seems consistent with the stated rationale i mean there's obviously the unstated bit of we're trying to uh generate rents from these people to uh give to the media but like the actual i felt like that was very much the stated rationale was we are going to make tech pay for news yeah, I, I guess it's more Overtly. like the we're going to shake down tech. The shakedown part is maybe a little less stated, but um, I don't know. I've seen a lot of framing that this is, you know, them holding host news hostage or strong arming or anything. But like, I don't know. Like, if you tell a company they have to, it's going to cost them more to do something. One of the very logical results is they look at the business and say, yeah, you know what? We're going to do less of that now. Uh, and that is just normal results of normal policy and implying that this is like strong arming or shaking down the government really does feel like it's uh, trying to amp up the rhetoric where it's not necessarily justified. Uh, relatedly, in terms of continuing fallout, Facebook's or Meta has specifically announced that they are going to terminate a contract they had with the Canadian press to hire additional journalists. This was something that the government had pushed social media to do in advance of the Online News Act was to try to make these deals to really proactively support media, and some of those kind of funds existed. I don't think anyone really predicted that they would kill existing deals. Um, the good news for Canadian press is they're going to honor the contracts of people who have already been hired, but there's not going to be additional hirings in the future, and this is going to be uh, bad news for Canadian press and other media organizations that have relied on some of these deals to keep afloat or to get new journalists on staff. Uh, it sounds from the Canadian press's cover. I've tried not to, in our show notes, to link to media companies that are involved in their own stories because it doesn't feel right. Not to like, I don't, I tr you know, I'm not saying anything against the journalists who wrote the stories. I think the stories themselves are fine. It just feels weird to, you know, have like CTV talking about Bell and what it's doing. Uh, but in this case, I couldn't find a different source, so I did link to a Canadian press story. But they're talking about how it has been a big boon for them to be able to particularly bring up BIPOC journalists and people from more diverse backgrounds to really improve newsrooms. Uh, but they're going to have to take that sucker punch. And that's a real sad part of this whole fallout. Um, the other weird thing that came out was Pablo Rodriguez has said had said earlier in the week that Meta was still in negotiations, and then Meta explicitly came out and said, no, we're not in negotiations, to which the heritage minister had to clarify that he's just like always talking to stakeholders about this stuff. And it's just not been a good week for him. No. Once, did the, the uh, staff once again forget to brief the minister on the uh, exact state of affairs of things, or or what? I don't know. It's it's such a mess. I mean, Michael Geist, I went to see how he's feeling these days, and the last four posts he's done in three days have all basically described this as uh, an own goal by the government. The damage continues to grow, media chaos, buyer's remorse. All of those are related to C-18. And all of those sound pretty on point. Like, this is not a good state of affairs for things. Um... Yeah, it's certainly not to have Google News work in Canada. Um, I mean, Facebook, I don't use it very often, and like the algorithm seems to have gone just to the point where it just like shovels garbage into my feed, and like it's it's not great anymore. Um, but yeah, overall, like this is something that's unfortunate. It's not great for the media either. Um, but like. The fault of that really does lay with the government and this like very poorly thought out legislation, which they ignored kind of 
the multiple warnings from stakeholders, from experts, all of this stuff about how this could potentially backfire, and they just kind of went ahead with it anyway. I think the one thing they're still holding out a, a you know a sliver of hope for is that it goes the way Australia did when they did the same bill, which is there's a lot of bluster and pronouncements by the me the social media companies following the passage of the bill, and then finally they cave and announce deals. And if they can get to that, the government can claim the smallest of Ws, even though it was like the ugliest of processes, but it's not a guarantee we're going to get there. A, and yeah, it's a pretty then big, do you say was it? It's a pretty big gamble. And like, you know, it's worth pointing out that Canada is significantly larger than Australia is. We just, we have a bigger market. And more to the point, we're more kind of proximate to several other major markets and players and regulators who will maybe be paying a little more attention to what happens in Canada than they do to some country on the uh, antipodes. And, you know, Australia is what, like 26 million? We just crossed 40 million? That's a pretty significant gap. And they may decide that, uh, you know, Australia wasn't worth fighting over, but Canada might be, both because of that larger market and because you know, the U.S. isn't great about paying attention to countries outside of uh, its borders, but, uh, you know, they probably pay more attention to what's going on in Canada than they do to Australia, and they may not want to uh, set the precedent somewhere a little closer to uh, such a major market. Yeah, I saw, I think this was in Geist's coverage, uh, but it might have been somewhere else, a comparison of some of the inter other international examples. And for example, um, the EU has looked at link taxing type approaches as well. And what they ultimately came down on was not doing it as hard as Canada, but they did bring in a link tax. But what it ultimately said is if we're only going to apply the tax or this requirement to do deals or whatever system they did, if you're like really stealing content, like taking big excerpts and bringing it into your system, because that discourages people from actually clicking through. And so they basically found a negotiated way to say, all right, you can, you know, have a search result. Uh, you can have maybe like a preview description. Maybe like the metadata then, that the news companies put exactly. into their own websites. Yeah. But like one of the things that I think is a legitimate grievance by many uh, creators and uh, publishers is like a lot of Google searches will give you that like quick uh, summary that it has crawled from your website to answer questions. And that's very useful from using Google, but you can argue that's copyright infringement at some point. And that's where they're kind of going. You got to scale that back a bit more. And I can see like the value of that, but Google in those cases scaled back, which is what they're doing here. Only they're scaling back everything. Yeah. Cause everything's captured. Like, it, it makes sense on that front. And yeah, like if it was actually the case where Google and Facebook were just like copying like all of the content showing it on their sites basically cutting out the uh media out of the thing and basically actually stealing content not this fake definition of stealing that the uh government and the uh industry lobbyists have cooked up but like the actual stealing of content yeah that would be entirely fair game to go after them just link it to them like that seems like a pretty unreasonable thing to start to trying to extract money over oh in terms of related things going on in the media space uh it was also announced this week that uh yes the rumors are true for those who had found the rumors post media and the toronto stars parent company nordstar are in talks about a merger the details they spelled out are a new company that would basically be a 50 50 split between them or they'd have like a complicated structure where the details don't really matter. So the voted rights yeah. split the voted rights of the stock split 50-50. The actual like economic portion of it, so there's like a 56 to 44%, uh 56 being to post media. Anyway, if you don't own post media or nerd start uh stock, this doesn't really affect you too much. But like, yeah, you know, roughly safe equal, but not entirely. Yeah, and from the from 
the newsreader's perspective, the claim is they will keep the Toronto Star's editorial independence from post media, although I treat that with immense skepticism based on the history of consolidation of media history in this country. For example, when post media bought the Sun Chains, they said the exact same thing and a few years later closed all of the or merged all of the desks across the country. And there's other examples where, you know, these mergers happen, layoffs follow, and then eventually there's just consolidation of newsrooms and loss of those independent desks, which means less coverage, right? That's what it ultimately means is less voices, less journalists, and uh, less information about what's happening in your communities and your country. Yeah, it's not ideal. So I mean, I, I find it a little amusing just because between post media and uh, the star, like you have like two papers that each side of the spectrum is like convinced is like in the pocket of one of the parties. And it's just, I mean, from that perspective, it's actually a little funny uh, or maybe funny is the wrong word, a little amusing. And it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that's all going to shake out um on there uh like context wise historically i think most people know post media is a right-leaning paper but and torstar is more liberal centered although in 2011 they endorsed the ndp federally it's uh, that's the only paper yeah, to do it's that a left but, of, yeah they're generally center left. yeah definitely left of center um i mean it has occasionally been somewhat divisively referred to as the red star red being the liberals colors because of how often they're their editorial line, you know, it's generally in the same orbit as the both provincial and federal liberal parties. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about Toronto Star in the last, I think it was only in the last year, is they did get bought uh, or their ownership transferred recently to a couple investors who were more traditionally conservative focused, but they said, you know, we're not going to touch the the fundamental principle, the social justice principles of the paper, we're not going to touch its editorial slant uh, and we'll keep the paper as it is. Uh, but now apparently they're just going to sell it and merge it with post media if they can. And man, we need more newspapers, not less. Yeah, so like the, the one potential silver lining I see in this uh, from the coverage on it is that apparently a decent chunk of the... Uh, debt that post media has which is being a significant drag on them on their financials uh is going to be uh converted into equity i don't exactly know the full structure of this but basically they're going to shed a decent amount of their debt in this and that might hopefully uh make them less of a financial train wreck and that may i don't want to say stop but hopefully we'll slow the uh decay of the uh the media chain yeah and it sounds from the reporting of or of their press release that toronto star is also in a massive downward economic spiral and bleeding money and if they like don't every merge major media they, they might not exist so like maybe this is the only way to keep any newspapers in the country besides the globe and mail and i don't even think they're particularly profitable i don't think the globe's particularly profitable either we're just going to have a bunch of people uh, subscribe to the New York Times in Canada, and they'll have like two reporters in Canada, like they do right See, now. I think if they're going to, if the Liberals are going to like tats anything, why not like a foreign media tats? That would at least make a little more sense than going after social media. They would just pull out. Like <laughs> that wouldn't be a hard decision. Uh, it's already difficult and unrewarding enough to run a news desk in Canada, as we've seen. Uh, HuffPost tried opening a Canadian desk, BuzzFeed tried opening a Canadian news desk, and they both pulled out after a year or two. Um, yeah, if you only have two journalists in Canada and they say we're going to tax you on them, they're going to not have two journalists I was thinking more of the subscriptions than the uh, the employees. Like, oh, yeah, just Yeah, like sure the fact it. that like a bunch of Canadians subscribe to the New York Times, but not necessarily uh, media from within Canada. It's not like super great for uh, Canadian media. Yeah, I'll, I'll go on that one. That one seems like an easier tax to do. Well, maybe not easier to do, but uh, less unintended consequences at yes. least. 
so yeah, we'll see how this merger moves forward, what the government starts to do about it, if anything. Uh, the Competition Bureau, we're going to talk about it in a second, but they're apparently feckless so uh, and toothless, so they will hum and haw. But if they can't go to court to prove this would be bad, which feels like a easy case to make in terms of like, will there be more or less competition if two of the three newspapers in Canada merge? I mean, we did just have them ask if two of the three telecoms merge, would it be more or less competition? And they went, you know what? I think it'll be fine as I am now a Rogers customer. Should we talk about the other <laughs> media company, telecom? Might as well. Yeah. So Bell was in the news a couple of weeks ago because they laid off like 12, a lot of people, a couple, over a thousand, um, a lot of popular journalists, a lot of anchors. They shut down a bunch of news stations, 1,300 positions, uh, and they're selling or shut airing nine radio stations. They closed two foreign bureaus, um, and now they have gone and said they want the CRTC to let them off the hook from having to provide as much news. One of the ways our regulatory system works is the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunication Commission, the CRTC, I don't know why. I would ever say out the full acronym. They say if you want to use the limited amount of over-the-air bandwidth for TV and radio, then you have to provide certain amount of Canadian content and for certain businesses, a certain amount of news coverage. And you have to invest a certain amount in news. Companies don't like that because news costs money and doesn't generally make money. Bell is saying they are losing uh, $28 million per year, and that's already increased to $48 to 40 million in the last year and internet advertising has stolen all of the revenue they would have otherwise had and so they're just bleeding money there never mind bell is otherwise immensely profitable oh hugely profitable um before the show i came in through the latest uh financial report and in that they've been paid in that they've uh increased dividends for the last uh 15 years straight uh on their I think dividends are up like five, I want to say 0.3% uh, year over year. Like they're, overall, the company's doing fine, even if one division isn't doing super great. And most of the time, I will say, yeah, you know what, let companies do what they want to do. But like, honestly, Bell Media makes a huge chunk of that money because we have basically shielded them from competition in uh, the telecom space. Yeah, you have like Rogers and Telus, but we have a whole bunch of laws that basically prevent foreign entrants from entering the Canadian market and competing with Bell. And as a result, they make a huge amount of money. And I don't know if a little bit of that goes to keeping part of the news one or news organization shutting the lawn like it hardly seems like the worst thing yeah the news division at bell was a rounding error and they were the leading television news station like for a while in terms of more people were watching ctv news than any other station and then they're like that doesn't matter to us we're gonna fire all of them we don't care uh they got you know all the pushback for firing Lisa Laflemme, who is one of the most popular anchors in Canada, and they said, we don't care. <laughs> it's pretty clear what their feelings are about news. Uh, in their statement, it's doubly ironic. They start talking about how uh, the digital media things such as Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime Video, and Apple+, Plus, which are foreign-owned and controlled, are where people are going for information and entertainment now. Uh, they neglect one of the subscription services that I'm subscribed to on there, and I'm pretty sure you are as well, which is Crave. Yeah, I am as well. So, like, they're competing in that space, so I don't know what their complaint is, uh, and I think they're probably doing pretty well because of those same kind of protections they get, where they're able to put shows on there that would otherwise be on, like, Paramount Plus in the U.S. and other subscription services. I don't think services. that's so, so much the fact that they're a Canadian... Oh, there's, like, laws that are around that. I think it's just that... Uh, li well, streaming licensing is this, like, horribly complicated thing, and, like, 
different countries have different uh like the same contents licensed out different ways in different uh countries and like it's might be the case that in a couple of years when the licenses run out uh on those that we'll see like a big push for like Paramount Plus or whatever to to come to Canada and like all of the Star Treks uh would move over to that and whatnot, which you know, not great. Uh because Stranger Worlds has been just solid for like two well, one and a bit seasons now. I'd hate to have to get another streaming service for that. Um the episode's good by the way. Um but yeah, I think that's more just have to do with like the complexities of licensing streaming content more than anything else. But overall the point is there. Like Crave has I think a decent market share in Canada has probably pretty uh like seems to have a fairly decent library. I gotta imagine like it's probably doing not too bad as far as streaming services go. It's got Letterkenny in ter- in terms of CanCon. Which is like the best thing CanCon's kicked out in a long time. Uh Shits Creek was up there too. Although well, yeah, Letterkenny that wasn't better. even set in Canada, but yeah. Both are good. Uh yeah. So media in this country continues to be a mess. Government is stepping in it and yeah uh you know what would be great to deal with some of these things is a very effective competition bureau to which we do not have according to both the competition bureau and uh house of commons committee that examined rising food costs in canada the competition bureau itself has a new report out keeping grocery prices in check Uh, and i mentioned the agriculture committee had a grocery affordability study released i think a week or two ago both of them basically looking at the an, another thing where Canada is really just, you know, three companies in a trench coat, the grocery sector. Weirdly, grocery is actually in some ways more competitive than the others because there are international players, Costco and Walmart in the field, and there's some independent and ethnic things in the field or stores in the field as well. But really, grocery in Canada is three companies Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro. And I don't even think we have Metro grocers out here on the West Coast. No, we don't. I saw a bunch of them in like Ontario when I was living there. But uh I guess we have some no, Madison I, ones instead. Yeah, so like turns out I was uh I shop at a Jimmy Patterson owned one, which I didn't know until I was looking up uh when I noticed it wasn't listed in like the big list of what the big companies own. Uh, when we were looking this over before the uh, the show. Yeah, nevertheless, the Competition Bureau says Canada's grocery industry is concentrated. Uh, those three companies I mentioned in 2022 collectively reported more than $100 billion in sales and earned more than $3.6 billion in profits. Which is this- not a huge profit margin. It's 3.6%. Like every for every dollar that gets spent, they make just over three cents in profit. Like, as far as businesses go, this is not a particularly high profit uh, industry. Uh, they cite a number of different ways that it's not particularly competitive in the market. Uh, the size of them and consolidation is a big problem. Uh, grocery margins a little bit harder to tell. One, one thing I found really fascinating in here are property controls. So one of the things they identified that grocery stores are doing are working with landlords and future owners in terms of uh, real estate sales and preventing competition from coming in. So in some cases, you might have a grocery store that owns the building it's in. When it sells it, it may put as a stipulation that it cannot be a new grocery store if they're just like moving their uh, Safeway or whatever from point you know, just across the street to a slightly bigger location, because then there wouldn't be a second grocery store in the neighborhood. And this is legal, as far as I know, in most provinces. Yeah, this is like, looking through the list, they didn't identify a huge amount of like, direct, like, this is things they are doing that are like, deliberately suppressing competition. A lot of it just kind of, oh, this is results of like how the market structure difficulty for companies to enter Canada, etc, etc. Um, this is one where it's actually just seems like a fairly clear case of, oh, we're just going to do stuff that's like straight up anti-competitive. Yeah, so the commission or the bureau recommends as its fourth of 
four recommendations that provinces and territories should take measures to limit this uh, actions, which could include banning the use of these property controls. Uh, they also note that, for example, many gro other grocery store chains lease space, but then when they break or you know close their lease out, they are able to pressure landlords into not allowing competition in the area as well. Which the mechanism that's just wild. That seems a little weird to me. Like, unless like the landlords also their new landlord at the other place. Like, what's the mechanism to actually exert the pressure? It does highlight that that can happen within like a mall or a situation where the landlord has multiple like facilities within the same thing. And the grocery store says, don't let any other grocery stores in here or we'll leave. And they'll go, well, I, we need your rent. Um, I'm just amazed by the power grocery stores have rel com as tenants compared to like residential tenants. Like Scott, you rent. And if you said to your landlord, like, don't allow such and such a person to move in, I'm assuming your landlord wouldn't take that positively. Probably not. I mean, I actually have like a really good building manager uh, who like, I don't know, if I came to him with an actual complaint about something that there might actually be something done about it. But like, yeah, it would be weird to just like preemptively say like, no, you can't do this. Uh, the other thing that is recommended uh, and this is mirrored in the committee, parliamentary committee, is the need for harmonized unit pricing. Uh, this is basically just a consumer information type of practice. And you actually see it in some grocery stores where you see the sticker price, but then below it, you see the this um, works out to 80 cents per 100 milliliters or 4 cents per gram. Uh, and then you can look across the shelf and compare like this brand of honey to the no-name brand of honey and see, oh, I save a little bit, even though they're different size products. Or the where I've actually found them, you just, there have been times where I've actually been surprised where like you would figure like just the bigger thing would be cheaper on a per unit basis. And I haven't always actually found that's the case. And having those like just put there is helpful on that. Yeah, because you can always bring a calculator you, or like, pull out your everyone phone, has phones. calculator I'm, and do it. Contrary to what my grade three uh, teacher told me, I will, in fact, have a calculator with me everywhere I go. But no one's doing that because it's boring and uh, exhausting. I do that sometimes, to... but I'm guessing not everyone shops the what, way I do. What harmonized unit pricing requirements could do is also include those per unit pricing in flyers. So they show an example. This is a plain language written report, actually, which is pretty interesting to read, although it's also like beating you over the head simplistic at times with like, and here's an example using a jar of jam. And you're like... I want some harder numbers in, as well, but they do show an example of like, here's six different uh, pictures of orange juice in one week's flyers. And some of them are like 500 mils. Some of them are like four liters and the prices are all over the place. And you're like, if you look at this, your initial impression is confusion rather than a simple ability to figure out what's the best deal. And so some of those things are helpful. I don't think they bring down prices, but they're definitely at least valuable information. And if it moves market behavior towards cheaper things, that can help a little bit. It doesn't hurt. Uh, the Bureau also recommends uh, allow processes from the federal and provincial governments to support uh, independent grocers and the entry of international grocers. And just like any good Canadian bureaucratic report the top line recommendation is for a grocery innovation strategy Ugh, that's like the most ottawa sentence ever written there are new businesses that want to disrupt how the industry works including selling groceries to canadians online i will say when i lived in the uk there was a online grocer who's only like they didn't have physical locations they just all of it was by delivery and they were actually pretty good so if we could have some online grocers like that in canada I'm for it. Do whatever it takes to help encourage that. Um, so yeah, overall, the report is a little disappointing. It does highlight that there's a problem, which I don't think we need a report to say. Um, but also, like, yeah, having more competition would be good. Bringing in like players from outside the country to compete would be helpful. But like, it's just not necessarily obvious that. Uh, there's a huge like business case for 
other countries' grocers to just come in and take part in the market here, which in some ways does point to it being still somewhat competitive despite the consolidation in the market. Well, they highlight example. They highlight like the target example uh, as one proof of challenge where a company did make an effort to come into Canada and try and compete. And like Target's not a pure grocery store, but it's kind of like in the realm of Walmart, right? Where they do have a grocery section, I believe, and they didn't make it, right? And other companies have struggled to really get a foothold. And so maybe this innovation strategy could highlight some of those barriers and really figure out the problems. Uh, you know, deeper down in this report, they talk about the challenge of bilingual labeling, but then they also highlight that lots of countries have bilingual labeling and a lot of companies say that's not actually an issue for the most part. Um, so yeah, figuring out novel ways, like where's the recommendation for a government-run grocery store? I mean, does anyone actually think that would uh, like be a great business or or do a lot? Like, we We have seen government-run telecom companies bring down the price of telecoms in the provinces where they have yeah, them. Yeah, I'm trying to guess that those were like not op businesses that were before this operating at like a 3% profit margin and that like don't have like very complicated supply chains that all feed into that. Like it's, governments are good at some things. Doing like a high quality retail experience does not seem to be in their wheelhouse and I mean, quite frankly, at this point, the government isn't even doing a good job of things that are in its wheelhouse. Like, the last thing the government of Canada needs to do is, like, try to start up a grocery store rather than, you know, making sure that ministers are briefed on what's happening, that the intelligence service let, is let, working properly, and that passports get issued quickly, and and all of, like, the basic stuff they haven't done well recently with. The Competition Bureau here is throwing recommendations to the provinces. Let the government of BC do it and, you know, act as a proof of principle. And if it's successful, we can expand it. But I'm just saying there's a lack of creativity in this report. Uh, the, com the Parliamentary Committee has a lot of similar actions. Uh, they also, because it's the Agriculture Committee, and because it's the Agriculture Committee flag that there needs to be more support for farmers, as there always does in this, and they point a couple of specific things, including a Russian tariff on fertilizer that they think needs to be abolished. That I think it's, it's actually our tariff, our tariff like, on Russian yeah. fertilizer. Yeah. It wouldn't matter to our farmers if Russia was charging a tariff on Canadian uh, fertilizer that was entering Russia. Um, I have a feeling we're not dropping but, that until Russia drops its whole war thing. Yeah. It was interesting to see a parliamentary committee, though, talk about that in particular, because those politicians probably know that because, I mean, they're not directly in charge of it. One of the slightly more novel things that they did recommend is they said that if the Competition Bureau finds evidence in its upcoming market study that grocery chains are generating excess profit on food items, the government of Canada should consider introducing a windfall profits tax on large price siting corporations to disincentivize excess hikes in their profit margin for those items. Big mouthful with a huge caveat about the Competition Bureau's evidence here. Um, did the Competition Bureau find that food grocery chains are generating excess profits? Yes and no. If you want to believe they did, I think you could say they did. If you don't want to do a windfall tax, you don't have to yeah, say that. Yeah, it feels that. like a pretty value-laden statement there. Like I just keep going back to like that top level number of like you know three and a half percent margin on the industry overall. Like, I don't know when I, when I think of like a a business that is generating windfall profits, three cents on the dollar just like is not what comes to mind here. And like they've gone up a bit. It's been the whole supply chain thing's been rocky. There's been inflation like things are going to kind of move around a bit just from all of that and like it's narrowing in on like i suppose windfall profit like just doesn't really seem to be all that backed up when you just look look at the high level number coming out of this so the high the one number isn't important as much as the change uh the report does say from the competition bureau 
looking at gross margins is the key thing and they have seen it increase by a quote modest yet meaningful amount over the last five years which is which like modest is not the same as windfall break that down right. but um yeah so a windfall tax for those who haven't come across the term this is something the federal ndp has been pushing a little bit more and more recently this is something that's been used a couple times sometimes during wars like in the first world war um but has also been looked at a couple other times in periods of high inflation is you take and it's an idea that you know you want to prevent profiteering uh especially during wartime and so you take an average profit margin for an industry or a company over five years before whenever you've decided it needs to be in place and you say all right that seems like you make three and a half percent if you're making above three and a half percent we're going to tax that excess profit and yeah you know it seems like a pretty effective disincentive for profiteering um now the question is how well have uh the profit margins of grocery stores changed uh modest yet meaningful amount is that excess yes is it like significantly excess N no so the liberals who don't seem keen to do a windfall tax can probably find the numbers in here to not do it and the ndp can find the numbers in here to say they should but it doesn't seem like a policy that is going to break the supply and confidence agreement yet yeah, like the the other thing that just uh, that kind of like modest injuries tells me is that you're probably if you really want to like get grocery prices under control, going after the profit margin probably is not where the big gains are going to be. Like to take the number that uh, they highlight, I mean, this would mean that like a hundred dollar grocery bill would get one to two dollars less, and you know. Sure, it would be nice to have an extra two dollars in your pocket, but you know, spending ninety-eight dollars as opposed to a hundred dollars on groceries just isn't going to be the thing that uh, kind of really actually helps anyone's budget all that much. And getting the the overall inflation down is probably going to do a whole lot more. So there you have it. We'll link to that report. Uh, both from the Competition Bureau and the Parliamentary Committee in the show notes if you really want to dig into uh, grocery affordability in this country. Uh, it's worth noting as well that both the Competition Bureau and the Parliamentary Committee both recommend amendments to the Competition Act to like give the Bureau some teeth because uh, apparently they don't. They highlight that, yeah, if they want to prevent a merger, they need to be very sure they can win a court case to prove that a merger will reduce competition and they don't seem to take that up very often even if they it's it's that con, you know small c conservative kind of mindset where they're not even going to take the cases if they're unsure and that like there's a good argument for that but it also means we're in a situation where uh post media and torstar are almost for sure going to merge unless someone in a position of power uh cares to try to stop it well, I mean, um, consider how ham-fisted yeah, C-18 is going to be. Like, are we sure that just wouldn't make the situation worse? Like, do, do you trust Pablo Rodriguez to meaningfully improve the situation with uh, Torstar oh. and uh, Postmedia? If it's a competition bureau change, thankfully he's not the minister in charge. I don't know offhand who is. I believe it's the minister of innovation and At stuff like that. At least it is not... Uh, Marco Mendicino either. Yes. Um, speaking of people on their way out, uh, David Johnston's in the news one last time as he's delivered one final report to the Privy Council office. Uh, it's a secret report. Man, doesn't that uh, just like... So he's kind of... Fit perfectly in with kind of how everything else has gone today. Like, he resigns, you know, we, the public have lost confidence, blah, blah, blah. I, I can no longer do this, but I'm going to stick around to finish my... You know, one final report, wrap everything up, but nobody actually gets to see it. Like this, just really just uh, just ends kind of how it started in a way that just makes everyone kind of look bad and wonder why we this has to be so hard to on everything. Yeah, like I get he has 
a lot of classified information, so a secret report makes sense from him. Um, but yeah, what a way yeah. to go out. Anyway, go actually enjoy retirement, David Johnston, because this is this was not probably a good few months for you personally. No, he actually like burned a huge amount of his reputational capital for not a huge amount. Indeed. Well, let's just close off with some numbers. Uh, Canada, I think it was more than a week ago, passed the 40 million mark recently. And StatsCan just released our first quarter immigration and population growth numbers. We had over 145,000 immigrants to Canada in the first three months of this year. That is the largest number of immigrants in one quarter since at least 1972, which is when data became available. So probably ever although 98 percent of our population growth was immigration because our birth rate is like yeah, 1.4 the birth rate is not great uh at all and yeah like the immigration is great would also be nice if we could up the uh the birth rate as well um but yeah good to see the country's growing and uh i will say like even though this may be the highest in terms of like raw numbers it might not be the highest in uh percentage terms like the early 20th century had some like really like high growth rates uh in canada like the whole uh laurier quip about how the uh this will be canada century like a huge amount of that was premised on like just the growth rates at the time keeping up which they didn't end up doing yeah and it's notable canada has also uh changed some of its admission criteria to really increase uh, what they call the tech talent strategy, as they're basically going to allow people on a H-1B visa in the U.S. to w apply for a Canadian work permit really easily so they can come here. This will bring a lot of uh, science, technology, engineering workers to Canada, and they will get a you know fast-track path to um, visas and immigrate um, citizenship. There's also a goal to make Canada a destination for digital nomads. I don't know where these people would live, but I guess this is the idea that, you know, if you're working remotely, you can live anywhere. And for some reason you choose to live in housing markets. Uh, Canada. Yeah. Like I get why you'd want to live in Canada, but affordability wise. Yeah, it's not great. I like, yeah, I like hundred percent on board about like going all maximum Canada and hitting the, uh, a big population number. But, uh, yeah, we have not done a great job at like scaling everything else up to match it. And that really needs to come along. Like the liberals have just been not great on housing or any of the other stuff really. So like Yeah, and so we're starting to see with these population numbers, or at least I've been starting to notice like a small uptick. It's not the majority dis opinion, I would say, yet, but that uptick in like immigration skepticism uh particularly around housing obviously because it seems like you know where is everyone gonna live is not an invalid yeah, no, question it's, like it's important to get this stuff right and I, it's worth knowing that like canada really is the inception in that we have kind of an all all party consensus around high levels of immigration like that is basically the case nowhere else on the planet and we sh absolutely should not take it for granted. And if we want to keep that going, we actually have to make it be a good proposition for Canadians to have these high levels of immigration. And that means stuff like housing and infrastructure and stuff needs to be being built at a rate fast enough to keep up with this. And if you don't do that that's probably going to fray and it is quite likely in that scenario that we kind of revert to kind of the net you know what seems to be the natural resting state of politics which is at least one major party being immigration skeptical and we don't want to end up there but if we don't actually get a hold of all of the strains that immigration does place on a country we're probably going to go there. That would not be good. Yeah. And we need immigrants to help with this. Right. And that's one thing that doesn't get talked about 
in a lot of these conversations enough, although I know a lot of people realize it is to build the houses to, you know, support immigrants. We need more immigrants as well because of labor shortages. Um, so yeah, the strategy needs to be there. The thought needs to be there and just the funding needs to be there because there's a lot uh, to do. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.